Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From Equity Mates Media, this is The Dive. I'm your host, Alec Renahan. A few hours ago, Taylor Swift released her highly anticipated album, Midnight. Regardless of whether you count yourself a Swifty, the name her fans give themselves, you can't deny the country-turned-pop singer is one of the most successful modern music acts working today. Forget that, one of the most successful music acts of all time. In her career to date, she sold an estimated 114 million album units, and according to Forbes, she's worth 570 million US dollars. But this album, despite being her 10th studio album, is only the fourth that she owns the complete rights to. Taylor Swift has been very public about the battle for the ownership of the masters of her first six albums for quite some time. It's Friday, the 21st of October, and today I want to know, what's the business behind Taylor Swift? To do this, I'm joined by my colleague here at Equity Mates, our head of production and resident Swifty, Sasha Kelly. We're reversing roles, but you were not going to miss this episode. How's it going? I was definitely not going to miss this episode. I think when we opened the studio this morning, you caught me listening to some of my favourite Taylor's music. So I'm all pumped. I'm ready to go. Yes. I asked you, was it the new album? You told me, no, it comes out at 3pm, uh, our time here in Australia. So you're all over it. And so there's no better expert to tell this story today. Sasha, we all know Taylor Swift. Many of us know her story, but we probably don't know it as well as you do. So catch me up. Give me the Taylor Swift 101. All right. So a quick recap, just in case you have been living under a rock. She's a 32-year-old singer-songwriter. She started in country music before crossing over and finding success as a pop singer. And as you said, according to Forbes, she's worth a staggering $570 million US dollars. Yeah, she is incredibly successful, one of the most successful singers of our generation. She sold over 100 million copies of her 10 albums, or 100 million album units, as I learnt the terminology preparing for this episode. Of those 10 albums, what sits on the podium? Give us the top three most popular Taylor Swift albums. Yeah. Not your favourite, Sasha. Not your favourites. Most popular. Well, it turns out that my favourite is also the most popular. So the podium places go as follows. 1989 is the most popular. I think it's her best album as well. So glad to see I'm with popular consensus. That was released back in 2014. Then second place goes to Fearless, which was released all the way back in 2008. And the bronze medal goes to Red, which was released in 2012. But as you said in that opening, she doesn't own the masters to any of those three albums because they come in her first six albums that she's released. Yeah, and that's important because if we're talking about the business of Taylor Swift today, there's nothing really more central to the story than the ownership of masters. So before we get into the detail, and Sasha, I know you're going to give me a lot of details, so I want to keep you high level to start with. 
Too Long didn't read Taylor Swift and her masters. What do I need to know? Okay, so she signed to Big Machine Records in 2005. Yes, Yes, I wrote the song when I was 12. And And it's pretty typical when you sign as a young artist who hasn't had any success that you sign away the rights to your masters. It's a bit of a quid pro quo for the cost of recording sessions, distribution, publicity, marketing, all that stuff that comes with promoting an artist. Yeah, and that's not uncommon in creative fields. Very similar if you're writing a book, the publisher will own... Uh, part of the intellectual property in the work. Similar story here. But Sasha, there is a lot bigger story than what you just told me. So what's the story? Tell me how Scooter Braun, Justin Bieber and Kanye West's manager fits into this. Uh, let's let's get into it. So basically her contract expired with Big Machine Records in 2018, at which point Taylor Swift, because she did want to own the Masters, she signed with Universal Republic Records. And part of that contract was that she'd own all her Masters moving forward. Meanwhile, Big Machine's records sold themselves for a reported $300 million, which included Taylor Swift's catalogue of six albums, which independently were worth $140 million worth of that deal, according to Variety. And they sold to Scooter Braun, the man who managed Kanye West and Justin Bieber. Earlier this summer, Scooter Braun, a talent agent with whom Swift says she has a contentious relationship, acquired the rights to her previous recordings, her masters. At this news, Taylor Swift mobilised her very powerful publicity and fan machine base on Braun and announced that as she'd been denied buying her masters back, she'd instead re-record them from scratch, rendering the previous albums worthless. And we've probably all seen on Spotify or Apple Music, square brackets, Taylor's version, and, and that's that's the re-recorded versions. Yeah, and we're going to get into that a little bit later. But Scooter Braun, now under attack from Swifties all over the world, he then decided to sell the masters of those original six albums to Shamrock Capital. And the investment fund paid $300 million for that six-album collection. So he flipped them for a nice profit. As reported by the Financial Times, Braun told potential acquirers at the time that Swift's threat to re-record was just a bluff. Now, we know in hindsight it wasn't a bluff, but just hearing you talk about those numbers, I've got to ask. We said earlier that Taylor Swift is worth $540 million. All these masters sold for $300 million, and I have no doubt that Taylor could have raised a lot more money from her fans and from private equity if she wanted to as well. Why couldn't she just buy them? Borchetta, who worked with Swift for years, says she and those close to her, including her dad, who was an investor, knew about the deal in advance. Oh, so there's a lot of kind of differing reports about that. I found out when it was online, like when it hit the news. Nobody in your inner circle Nobody knew. knew. Both sides have differing stories. Okay, so Taylor didn't buy them back. She re-recorded. Uh, Scooter Braun said it was a bluff. He was wrong. What next? So actually, Scooter Braun spun this re-record as a positive thing before this happened. He said that the publicity generated by Swift talking about this was actually going to boost listening to the back catalogue. Said one of the people who was pitched to buy this catalogue said the message was, the controversy is great. Every time she lights up online, people go and listen to the songs. And they thought that pitch sounded reasonable enough. After all, what currently relevant star who's in the charts is going to bother spending years of their life meticulously re-recording their old work? Well, Taylor Swift would. Mm, Now, 
This has been one of the most interesting experiments in modern music history. It's not something we've really seen before, this whole re-recording. But it's important to note, this isn't the first very famous musician that has got in a fight with their record label over their masters or tried to buy their masters back. So in telling the story of Taylor Swift and the business of Taylor Swift, we wanted to broaden it out and give a little bit of context about those that have paved the way for this dispute. But before we do that, Sasha, we need to really unpack masters, royalties, copyright in musical works, all of that good intellectual property stuff to understand why it's so important and why music masters have become such good business. So where do you want to start? (laughs) Okay, well, first of all, I'll say this is a section of the law that people spend years studying and it's so complicated. So I'm really going to give you high level here, but there's a lot more detail than I think is usually reported. So let's first of all talk about music copyright. There are two types of music copyright attached to every song ever made and that's on one side composition and on the other side is masters. So the composition rights holders are held by the people who imagined the song into existence. So think the melody and the lyrics. And then on the other side, the masters are actually the sound recording of those lyrics and melody. They're created when the composition is turned into a sound recording. And those are owned by the recording artist and or their record label. So do you know this song, Alec? And I- Yeah, a classic. I think most people listening would know this song. Yeah, it's great car karaoke music. But here's the thing. It's actually written by Dolly Parton. So while it's sung by Whitney Houston, Dolly owns the rights to the composition and the publishing. And she'd be paid every time the Whitney version appears, even though she's not on it. So the owners of these copyrights earn different royalties for different uses of the song. Music royalties are payments received by rights holders, songwriters, composers, recording artists, recording labels. So think of them as dividends paid to the co-owners of a song. But unlike dividends where it's the same amount per share, in songs, all royalties are different. This is where it gets really confusing. So there's synchronisation rights when you hear the song in a TV show or a movie. There's reproduction rights when it's sold on an album or streamed on Spotify. And then there's performance rights when it's performed in public. If you own both the masters and the composition copyright, you'll be able to sign off and give permission for those licences to be issued. Then you'd be happily collecting all those different dividends, some for you, some for others, cutting them up and delivering all that money to different individuals or corporations, the performers, the songwriters, the record labels and the publishers. So for those that got lost in all of that, the the key takeaway is that every time a song is played, be it we listen to it on Spotify or Apple Music or you hear it on a TV show or a movie or another band or artist covers it, the original rights holders get paid. And as you said with this Dolly Parton example, sometimes they can get paid a lot. For a song that she wrote, she's earned more than $10 million from I Will Always Love You. So it is big business. Absolutely. And to add more confusion to the matter, the rules and payment sizes vary from country to country and different rights and different licenses. And many of these payments, you have to have permission for both the copyright holders of the masters and the composition, who in the case of Taylor Swift's music, belong to two groups of people who aren't getting along. 
And as the Financial Times reported, one fund manager passed on buying her catalogue from Braun because, quote, to extract maximum value from music assets, you absolutely need, if not cooperation from the artist, you at least need them not to be actively angry, end quote. So that's a good place to take a break, Sasha, and digest what we've just learned. There's a lot of complexity when it comes to music royalties, but it makes sense that Taylor is re-recording them because then the composition rights holder and the master's rights holder to the Taylor's version of the music will be the same person, Taylor Swift. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to The Dive. Today, we are talking the business of Taylor Swift. She has released her new album. By the time you're listening to this, the album is out, but do not pause and go and listen to the album. It will be there after you finish listening. When we talk about the business of Taylor Swift, we have to talk about owning your masters. But Sasha, it's not just Taylor Swift who has tried to buy back their masters and who has fought to own their own masters. There's a pretty long history of musicians that have tried to get back what they wrote. Yeah, there's Prince who fought for two decades with Warner Brothers. He famously wrote slave on his face when he was fighting with the company. And he said, if you don't own your masters, they own you. And then there's the famous feud between Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson as well. So they were collaborating together in 1985 and Paul McCartney said to Michael Jackson, like just in breaks, just when they were hanging out, this is what you should do with your money. You should invest your fortune in music publishing. You should buy other artists' songs. McCartney said that because he just bought Buddy Holly's body of work and he'd lost the rights to Lennon and McCartney's catalogue and he was working on buying them back. So Michael Jackson took his advice, but what he did is bought the entire Beatles catalogue from underneath McCartney. He bought all 251 songs for $47.5 million. Brutal. Bit of a bargain though, really. Like if you're going to buy any catalogue, go after the Beatles. So naturally, Alec, it was the end of that friendship. Michael Jackson was pretty pleased with himself though. He said, you can't put a price on a Picasso. You can't put a price on these songs. They're the best songs that have ever been written. High praise from a fellow songwriter, but that's probably cold comfort for Paul McCartney as he wasn't able to buy back his masters. But Sasha, I think we've covered the business and the importance of owning your masters. They are ultimately control over your music, but they are also a really good income stream, especially in today's streaming world. So Taylor Swift is two albums down, two of six, a third of the way there. She re-recorded Fearless and Red. I guess the question becomes, is Taylor setting a precedent here? Are other artists who signed with record labels early days and who don't own their masters seeing Taylor and are they going to say, we're going to do 
uh, California Cation, Red Hot Chili Peppers version, or American Idiot, Green Day version. Is that is that what's next in the music business? I'm not sure about those specific examples, even though they'd be great to hear re-recorded, because we just don't know what their individual contracts say. But we know in the case of Taylor Swift, there was a clause in her contract that had a time limit in re-recording. According to fans who have been the super sleuths, they say that all of those albums will be up for re-recording at the end of this year. So we can expect it. But the reason that it takes so long and why so many artists didn't do it and why they thought it was going to be a bluff is because the process of recording is pretty detailed. There's individual tracks, then those are put together by a sound producer and then they're sent to a mixing engineer who balances all the individual instruments and parts in a song. And then it's sent to a mastering engineer who puts the finishing touches on it, makes sure all the songs none of them are louder than the other, creates consistency, prepares it for distribution, and that is the master recording. So it's not as simple as just like adding a tambourine line and re-recording and chucking it up online. So it's not simple, but it is genius. And the, the genius of it all may actually be in this could be a long road to get her original masters back. If Taylor's versions start usurping the original versions on Spotify and Apple Music, Surely the value of those original masters will go down because they'll be generating less revenue from Spotify and the like. And maybe she'll be able to pick them up for pennies on the dollar. What's happened to the original six masters? Have they gone down in value or where are they at now? Yeah, well, that's what I found really interesting in this reporting by the Financial Times is that they think it's going to actually affect the value of Shamrock's $300 million investment because the sale price actually had an earnout payable to Braun and his team if the asset hit certain targets, so if it had certain streams and units sold. And without the earnout, the sale price is closer to 250 million. So if her six album catalog earns about 15 million dollars a year, which is apparently what it does according to people who saw the financials, the deal works out to be a multiple of 16 or 17 times historic income. Like that's 50 million dollars difference in value just with two of them re-recorded and she's got four left to complete yeah and that multiple expands if the revenue that 15 million dollars a year comes down so that'll be an interesting one to watch now sasha there is one other option that taylor has i think we said it earlier that she could look to her fans to raise money to maybe buy back her masters and she wouldn't be the first artist to do it there has been an example that we've seen before david bowie Uh, raise money from his fans as we close out the episode hopefully taylor's listening and thinking about her next move what can she learn from david bowie yeah i love this story so apparently in the 1970s david bowie realized that he didn't own all the rights to his own music his former manager tony defrias owned up to about 50 percent of the rights on a sliding scale in perpetuity So in the mid-1990s, David Bowie and two members of his team came up with a way to generate cash from his back catalogue and raise money to buy his masters back. In 1997, he issued Bowie Bonds, which were asset-backed securities that awarded investors a share in his future royalties for 10 years. He struck a deal with record label EMI, which allowed him to package the royalties for 25 albums released between 1969 and 1990. Albums that contained hits like The Man Who Sold the World, Ziggy Stardust and Heroes. Reportedly, although this amount was never publicly confirmed, he used $27 million to buy Tony DeFries out. It is a fascinating story, Sasha. I think we'll leave it there. 
there's plenty more to the business of Taylor Swift, but we don't have plenty more time. So maybe when she releases her next album, we'll, we'll return to this story and talk about the business of Taylor Swift beyond her masters. But if you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend about it. It really is the best way for a podcast to grow. If you've just joined us, welcome. Go and check out our back catalogue. We have covered a lot of ground over the past few months. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at thedive.businessnews. You can contact us by email, thedive at equitymates.com. And you can subscribe wherever you're listening right now so you never miss an episode. Sasha, I loved swapping roles today. I loved being the host and letting you do all the work. Thank you for joining me today. <laughs> My pleasure. Until next time. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.